Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the Congressional Budget Office's preliminary year-end estimate for fiscal year 2022, which ended uh, on September 30th. The deficit is down, but as we'll see, that's not the end of the story. And then we'll look at the latest inflation numbers, which are not down, and how the Fed's move towards higher interest rates could affect the budget. And you can probably guess what direction that takes. And finally, we'll check in with Nick Troiano, a former Concord Coalition intern who now leads a Colorado-based organization called Unite America that is pursuing a state-by-state -state strategy to open up party primaries so all voters can participate. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Boy, we've got a lot to review this week. Uh, in fact, uh, Tori, you wrote a blog that's available on the ConcordCoalition.org website, and I recommend everybody go look it up. And the blog is called Big Week for Budget News. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had the, the CBO report. And we had the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, weigh in on inflation in September. We had a huge cost of living increase for Social Security and another rate, uh, fed, a rate hike from the Federal Reserve. So let's start with the CBO numbers on the end of the fiscal year. Drum roll, please, Tori, what did they show? So first, let me just point out that the fiscal year does not run a calendar year. You and I are used to a year being January to December for the, the federal government. The fiscal year runs from October 1st to September 30th. So we're already looking at preliminary estimates for the closeout numbers for fiscal year 2022. And according to the Congressional Budget Office and their preliminary estimate, the deficit for the fiscal year that just ended on September 30th, fiscal 22, the deficit was $1.4 trillion. Um, so there's good news and bad news there. Uh, the good news is it's, it's half the size it was last year. Last year's deficit was $2.8 trillion. Um, the bad news um, is that it's still too doggone high. Um, and uh, we still got a lot of a lot of work to do on getting our our fiscal house in order. There are a couple of anomalies in that number. I mean, the one point yes. four trillion is affected in a couple of ways that you pointed out on the blog. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the anomalies that go into yeah. that number? Well, obviously, you know, a deficit is is a is a an, a mathematical relationship between two numbers, right? It's the difference between how much we spend and how much we generate in revenues. And there were some weird things going on on both sides there. On the spending side, uh, we spent a lot less than we did last year. The federal government spent about 8% less than last year. But it's not because any kind of fiscal restraint suddenly you know, 
uh, morphed over Congress and they decided to be more fiscally responsible. It's not like they took proactive actions to, to cut spending. What they did is they just didn't renew emergency COVID relief. So it's literally Congress did nothing and the, and the deficit fell. Um, on the revenue side, a couple of things happening there. Obviously, the economy recovered from the, the COVID pandemic a lot faster than ever, anyone expected. So tax revenues were up big, 21% over last year. Part of that was economic growth, but part of it also was deferred taxes. If you recall, some of the COVID emergency relief uh, legislation that was passed in, in 2020 and 2021 allowed uh, businesses and, and some individuals to defer um, their their tax liability, uh, meaning they could pay it later. And so those due dates were in fiscal year 2022, which is why we saw revenues up as big as they were. Part of it was economic growth. Part of it was that people got to defer their taxes. So it's great deficit reduction for politicians because they didn't have to do anything. And, right. <laughs> and, the, de- and the deficit came down. And I, I think, as you pointed out in the blog, it's uh, it's still high. I mean, we, we yes. forget because it just spiked so ridiculously during the last two years because of the pandemic and the economic fallout from that. So just getting back to a quote unquote normal is uh, is is uh, it's a normal that is not normal. It's right. I mean, I, I would normal. like to point out to people who are listening, one point four trillion dollar deficit is not normal. It's not normal on a dollar basis, but it's also not normal in terms of, you know, like a percentage of GDP, which is one of the, the ways that, you know, economists and, and budget people, you know, we like to compare you know, budget data from year to year because of the effects of inflation and a growing economy. We always look at budget statistics as a percentage of GDP. And the long-term average over the last 50 years of our deficit relative to GDP was three and a half percent. And last year's, you know, preliminary numbers from from CBO show that the deficit is about five and a half percent of GDP, a full two percentage points higher. Um, you know, and clearly, you know, that level of, of deficit spending is is not sustainable. Um, so, you know, yay, the deficit is half what it was last year, but it's still too damn high. <laughs> uh, I want to turn to Steve uh, on this for one other comment on the $1.4 trillion, because 2022 gets charged with over $400 billion for the student loan uh, forgiveness program that the Biden administration is implementing now. How does that happen? The, the Biden administration uh, recently announced this new student debt relief policy. And the proposal basically is to allow students to write off between ten dollars and $20,000 in student loan debt. And, you know, from a budget perspective, or, or well, let's say it this way, from a cash flow perspective, what the Biden administration is doing is allowing students not to repay a loan. So what you would assume is that that would affect future revenue. In other words, if the government was going to collect repayments of student loans, that's money that they're going to get in the future. But the federal budget treats credit programs a little differently um, because of what's known as the Federal Credit Reform Act, uh, which was enacted back in the 1990s. Federal credit programs, whether it's a loan or a loan guarantee, are counted on a net present value basis. And what that means is that we estimate how much money is going to be lent out and then how much will that get repaid. And you take that cash flow of 
the, 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 uh, the disposition of the loan and the repayment of the loan, and you calculate a net present value. And so in the case of previous student loans, those were recorded in previous budgets on a net present value basis. When you change the terms and conditions of a loan, you have to update that and make a new present value calculation. And so essentially what the, the Congressional Budget Office did uh, in, in estimating the cost of the President's student loan program is they said, well, how much would these students have repaid over the life of their loan over the next 10 or 20 years? Now that the debt has been forgiven, we're going to take the present value of those repayments, and that is now a cost, that that's money that the government would have collected, but it's no longer going to collect that money, and that has an effect on the budget, and it'll be recorded for fiscal, 2020, fiscal year 2022 as the net present value of the repayments that will no longer be repaid. <laughs> Sorry for that explanation. But yeah, well, it that was a, it's, uh, <clears throat> I think it's important because it's a fairly sizable chunk of money, over $400 billion added to right. the, uh, the deficit. And it's a different kind of a number. It's, you know, as you said, it's a net present value number. And, and at the la last minute, too. I mean, that policy change was announced in what, August, September? Yeah. So imagine, you know, deficit would have been a lot lower if they just waited. <laughs> The interesting thing also about that number, not to get too confusing to people, but it doesn't add to the debt. I mean, okay. The, 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 the cash flows will eventually. You said it, now you have to unpack it. Yeah, but but it, it's, that is, it, it doesn't all of a sudden add 400 billion to the debt. That's, yes, that's Otherwise correct. the debt limit would be, would be at the debt limit if that happened. So it's, a, it's an accounting switch that affects the budget deficit. But interestingly, the debt effect will come with the cash flows as they play out over time. That's right. The, the debt will be larger in the future because we will have collected less repayments. So yes, it will affect the debt in the future, but not in the current year. That's that's but, a good trivia question for <laughs> economic students all over the country or whatever. You know. And I can just tell we've got listeners all over the place that are sitting here <laughs> saying, this is what's wrong with the federal government is that, you know, they're just, it's just funny money and weird methods of, of, of booking cash versus... Oh, cash accounting versus net present value accounting versus it adds to the deficit, but not to the debt. This is why we're in this hole that we're in. The irony is, is that when we did this back in the 1990s, everybody agreed that, oh, no, this is the best way to do this. And yeah, now, this would make everything more transparent. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think we're now learning that maybe that wasn't the best decision after all. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting. Well, how did I mean, I think there was one interesting way that's not at all Hocus pocus in which inflation has shown up already in the budget, you pointed out, Tori. Uh, yeah, that was that was one of the scary things is that, uh, you know, inflation we've seen is you know, obviously affecting consumer prices. It's also affecting interest rates. You alluded to the, the Federal Reserve and, and their uh, recent rate hike. Uh, but the impact of higher inflation is also showing up in net interest costs to the, to the federal government. Net interest costs in 2020, fiscal 22, even though overall spending uh, was lower, net interest costs were up 29% uh, over last year, largely because of the, the interest rate principle we pay on treasury inflation protective securities. Uh, so interest, interest or higher inflation is already having an impact on net interest costs, which is a little scary because we're only at the beginning. Well, speaking of um, inflation, we had the September inflation report. And uh, what did you find there, Tori? So uh, 
It was a shocker. Let's just put it that way. I'm sure everybody's read their New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, uh, you know, whatever their 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 CNN, you know, journal, CNBC articles of of, of choice on on what's going on with the economy. Um, top line inflation, eight point two percent, was a lot higher than than what people were expecting. The real shocker, though, was the increase in core inflation. Core inflation being. Uh, you exclude the highly volatile uh, food and, and energy components of the CPI and just focus on everything else. That was up 6.6%, which is uh, year over year, um, which is the highest uh, level, uh, uh, highest increase in the last 40 years. And that was that was a big, big shocker. Um, and I think the, 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 the takeaway from that is that the Federal Reserve isn't even close to being done in terms of rate hikes to ease inflation. They've got a lot of ground still to cover. That core inflation number, yeah, that that looked very disturbing. There's a pattern in a chart you did that basically shows that core inflation number has been rising, you know, kind of level really go even going back to the spring. Right. And and through the summer and then the last this is like the third consecutive where it's inched up a bit. In the face of Fed tightening, the top line number in the face of Fed tightening has has moderated a little bit. You know, when you look at year over year numbers, um, but the core inflation, at least at this point, I mean, obviously, monetary policy acts with a lag. We know this. We just don't know how much of a lag because it's different every time. Um, and while it appears that maybe top line inflation has has moderated a bit, you know, at eight point two percent. Compared to nine percent in you know this summer, um, you know that the core inflation number is not following that that trajectory. And there was another report this week: um, wages, you know, and whether or not they're keeping up with inflation. And the bottom line there was they're not, right? <laughs> uh, which is you know the frustrating thing is that uh, you factoring in there were big increases in 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 wages, which is a good thing, but they're not as as high as inflation. So so-called real wages uh, adjusted for inflation have actually been inching down. And uh, that's that's a mess. Right. I think that let's uh, another way that this is having an effect, Steve, is a big increase in the Social Security cost of living adjustment, the so-called COLA, which happens every year. What uh, what was announced last week on the COLAs? Yeah, so the, the Social Security uh, program has annual cost of living adjustments. And of course, they use the data with a lag. They basically take the, the third quarter of each year. So that would be um, July, August, and September. So they take the inflation, uh, average inflation for those three months and compare it to the previous year. And they use a slightly different uh, in, in measure of inflation, it's called the CPIW, which is for wage earners, uh, because obviously Social Security is paid, the, the, the cost of the program is paid by wage earners. And so they were thinking they were going to tie the COLA to the to the workers who were paying the taxes to support the program. And essentially that, that measure of inflation showed up at 8.7%, which means that everybody who's receiving Social Security benefits this year uh, when they calculate their their December check, which will be paid in January, uh, beginning in 2023, they will all get 8.7% more, uh, which is obviously welcome relief for 
you know, the seniors and the disabled who are getting those checks, but it obviously has an impact on the budget. I mean, the Congressional Budget Office had estimated about a 6% COLA, and uh, it's now up at 8.7. I think that that difference works out to be about an extra $33 billion in cost to the federal budget next year. And of course, that cost will continue because that COLA will go into the base of people's benefits. And then next year, the COLA will be paid on top of that $33 billion. And so it actually compounds. Uh, so yeah, so the, the big COLAs mean uh, beneficiaries get more, but it also means that the cost to the government and the budget and to the national debt is also more. I, I don't mean to cast dispersions, but it seems to me that the trustees had an even lower projection of COLAs when they made their, their last report. Yeah, and interestingly, the trustees report, which came out uh, at the beginning of the summer, they had estimated a 3.8% COLA. And so, yeah, they, they unlike CBO, which was at six, which they were too low, the, the trustees were, were even lower. And of course, you know, when you factor in the higher COLA relative to the trustees, probably that's going to push up the, uh, the trust fund exhaustion date by, by as much as a year. Um, I guess we'll have to wait till next year's report to see what they have to say about that. But, but yeah, it was, yeah, there was a, there was a significant difference between CBO and the, and the trustees this year. And between what actually happened. So it's a, well, certainly now that we know the rest of the story, yeah, they both were wrong by different amounts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tori, uh, going back to your blog, you included a uh, what I found to be a really fascinating, informative uh, chart uh, called Timeline of Current Inflation. And what it does is it sort of juxtaposes the increases in inflation with sort of what was going on at the time. And, you know, what you really see is at the beginning, not the, at the beginning, but sort of early spring of last year is when inflation really began a, a meteoric rise. Right. And at first you've got, you know, little uh, floating comments on, on top that just say things like, you know, the Federal Reserve said this is temporary. <laughs> a couple months later, the Federal Reserve said this is very frustrating. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, uh, everything is going up, up, and it still uh, hasn't uh, hasn't leveled off. Uh, it's it's quite dramatic, and it, I mean, it shows that you know things like the Russian invasion uh, certainly had an effect. But but things were way high; uh, inflation was way high before that happened. I think I think the one takeaway for me from looking at this chart was really how far. I mean, you know, the, Jerome Powell, who heads the the, the Federal Reserve. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of the Federal Reserve and how slow they were to react to inflation. And I think one of the things that shocked me in looking at this chart is how late they really were. Um, they were almost a year late. I mean, obviously, you want to, you know, one data point does not make a trend. So in, in, in March of last year, you know, we had a blip in inflation and then we had a couple of more blips. Um, and uh, but it, it the, the chart shows that the Fed waited almost an entire year before it started raising rates in the face of inflation. And I think that shocked the heck out of me. Yeah. And now, you know, that is partially to blame for the fact that they're um, tamping down so hard, uh, right. just trying to regain that credibility and, and trying to slow inflation. Uh, we'll pick up with more on the Fed in the next section, in the next uh, segment. Uh, that's uh, We're going to take a A quick break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages. 
Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are de- discussing the fiscal 22 deficit, the latest inflation report, and the Fed's actions on interest rates. Um, Steve, let me go to you on uh, kicking off this segment. The, uh, the Fed did raise interest rates yet again. Everybody expected them to do so and probably will do so again at their, uh, at their next meeting. Um, you did a, a simple model back in uh, the summer of 2021, I think it was, for a, an issue brief. Well, it was a fa- shape of things to come uh, report uh, f- by Richard Jackson and on why deficits matter. And one of the, re- one of the uh, reasons that deficits matter is, uh, is interest rates on the debt, having to service the debt. And the point that you and Richard were trying to make is that the then projections of interest costs on the debt might be overly optimistic. And what happens if they were? I mean, what happens if interest rates rose just a bit from where CBO was projecting? I went back and looked at that, and it really seems a lot more prescient. (laughs) Seems uh, very interesting to look at. You want to Revisit that and uh, tell us what you were saying at the time, what your findings were. Back in 2021, uh, the Congressional Budget Office was assuming that interest rates are going to stay low for a long time. You know, this was before inflation had clearly reared its ugly head. And so, it, you know, it didn't seem unreasonable. Inflation or interest rates had been low for a long time. But, you know, we were sort of saying, well, yeah, but what happens if they, they don't continue to stay low? And so we just did a, a simple sort of, you know, mathematical exercise that says, you know, if, if interest rates rise more quickly than currently anticipated or currently at the time back in 2021, you know, what would that do to, to the national debt over the next, you know, say 30 years? And and I think at the time, uh, the Congressional Budget Office was saying that the national debt would be, uh, I think, you know, over the 30-year period they were looking at, the national debt would rise to about 200% of GDP. And so we said, well, what if interest rates rise to the same level, the, the long run of about 4.5%, but they get there more quickly than what CBO was anticipating at the time? And so we had interest rates ramp up more quickly to the ultimate rate of four and a half percent. And what happened is, of course, that the national debt and the cost of interest compounds and the national debt ended up being at about 240% of GDP. So it added about 40% of GDP to the to the national debt. And so it was a substantial effect. Now, since then, of course, interest rates have been creeping up and CBO revised their estimates. But even as recently as this past uh, May, this back in the summer, uh, CBO was estimating that the 10-year treasury was going to be at 2.5% roughly, and the three-month uh, treasury bills would be at about 1%. Well, as of, as of yesterday, when I looked, the 10-year rate was up almost at 4%, and the three-month rate was at 3.5%, 3.6%. So, you know, we've already added, you know, more than a percentage point uh, to, to, the, to the long-term rate, and, and uh, you know, almost two and a half percentage points to the short-term rate. So we know interest rates are already much higher than CBO anticipated. Now, the question is, will they remain higher? And will they go even higher than they are right now? 
And, and that, of course, is a very relevant question because you know when you have $30 trillion in national debt, every time you add a percentage point to the interest rate, that's an extra $300 billion a year. Over a decade, 300 times 10, that gets you to, to $3 trillion. So you know, a, a percentage point rise in the interest rate on the national debt will add roughly $3 trillion uh, to the to the cost of the federal budget, to the cost of interest, and therefore adding also to the debt. So it, you know, it, it becomes a very serious problem very quickly when interest rates turn out to be higher than we anticipated, and, and that's, of course, the prospect that we face now. You know, at the time, it, it, it may have struck people as alarmist because there was no indication uh, of. Uh, I mean, interest rates weren't going up, um, but of course the reasons that interest rates have been going up were, I guess the seeds had been sown at that time uh, for higher inflation and the Fed coming in to try to fight it. What's the mix on treasuries? I mean, as we're trying to roll things over between short-term debt and longer-term debt. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. I mean, I was referring to the 10-year rate and the three-month rate. Those are sort of the benchmarks that that the Congressional Budget Office uh, makes estimates and projections for. And the reason that we care about long-term rates and short-term rates is because the federal government has the ability to borrow both short and long. Um, If you look at the current mix about, I think about three quarters, 75% of the outstanding debt will mature over the next 10 years. So, you know, you can say, well, you know, a quarter of the debt is kind of locked in at low rates that when we borrowed back in the previous decades when interest rates were low. But essentially, out of that 30 trillion, three quarters of it is going to come due over the next decade. And in fact, about half of it will come due within the next year. Um, Typically, the Treasury issues a lot of very short-term notes, one month, three month, six month, one year. These are known as as Treasury bills. They all mature within less than a year. I think the last time I looked, about about 40% of the debt uh, falls into the bill category, which means that, that they roll over every year within a year. So as interest rates have been rising, short-term interest rates have been rising from 1% up to 3.5%. You know, that portion of the debt, that 40% or so, that'll all have to get rolled over this year, and it's going to roll over at the higher rate. So, you know, we're going to start seeing, you know, I think, Tori, in the, in the previous uh, section, we we talked about interest costs being higher in 2022 than expected. Well, interest costs in 2023 are also going to be higher than expected right. because we're already seeing the higher interest rates. And we know because of the, the distribution of maturities of outstanding debt, that a lot of that debt's going to get rolled over in the short term. And those short term rates have really come up. You know, I don't want to pile on the gloom and doom here, but there's, there's a, a growing talk about recession here and, and a global recession. And uh, I guess the good news is that people are not projecting a deep recession, um, but almost everybody seems to think that given inflation where it is, a recession is almost inevitable. There's also some talk about how the Fed and clamping down too hard or you know, very hard whether it's too hard or not as a matter of judgment. The, the question is, would there be spillover effects on the world economy? And should the mm-hmm. Fed be worried about those? I think that's a conversation that a lot of economists are starting to have, including Janet Yellen, you know, our Treasury Secretary. Um, 
you know, we're, we're raising rates here. And uh, that means that the interest rates that we pay on our treasury securities are higher, but that's good for investors, right? Investors like higher interest rate, you know, they're, they're more interested in holding bonds when interest rates are higher, but you know, it's, it's, it's a competitive asset, right? So if, if we're, if, if our treasury securities are paying higher interest rates, then that means uh, central banks in other countries are sort of forced to raise their rates too in order to be competitive so they can lure investors to purchase their debt as well. So as we raise rates here, it's causing central banks in the EU and, and other nations, the UK, Germany, you know, all, all these other major economies in Europe, they have to raise their interest rates too, um, which, you know, throws their economies into disarray as well. So there is some concern that the United States and our monetary policy is on the leading edge of a global recession in 2023. And obviously some economies are more prepared to deal with that than others. Yeah. And I guess the question is, you know, which, which is worse taking a, uh, a hit on a recession or allowing inflation to run rampant or is it not run rampant, but I mean, <laughs> uh, backing off too soon mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and not uh, curing the inflation problem. Clearly the Fed has determined that the higher priority is to uh, bring down inflation because that would be the thing that's most necessary over the long term. They made it pretty clear that they're at this point willing to uh, experience a recession if that's what it takes. I mean, one of the things that the Federal Reserve obviously is worried about is not just inflation as we're experiencing it right now, but inflation expectations. And the goal all along has been to anchor. You hear this a lot, the word anchor expectations such that, all right, we might be experiencing some inflation right now, but it's going to go away as the Fed does its job. You know, this isn't something that's going to be with us in perpetuity. And I think as you know, inflation continues to, to ramp up and, and ramp up around the world, um, you, that's when you start to worry about what's happening to, to expectations. Steve, I think you're pretty much a stay the course guy. You know, I, I, I like to, to look at the past and use that as a guide. Now, obviously, you can never say the past is, is predictive of the future, but uh, historically, to, to, to tamp down inflation sufficiently, interest rates have to get as high as the inflation rate, which means another way to say that is you need real positive interest rates as opposed to negative interest rates, which is what we still have. And when the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate, people are actually losing money on their investment. And if you look historically, getting inflation under control requires the interest rates to rise up to the inflation rate to basically restore a positive interest rate. Now, obviously, inflation's 8%, interest rates are 4%. You know, they, they could meet in the middle. You don't necessarily you know, have to contain inflation by raising interest rates to 8%. But if inflation doesn't continue to come down, you would see interest rates approaching you know, that level. And that's what, again, that's what we've seen in the past, back in the 70s, early 80s. Uh, interest rates were as high as you know 10, 12, 14, 15 percent because that's what the inflation rate was. And that was what was necessary uh, at the time to contain inflation. Now that definitely something not- we're going we're going to have to <laughs> keep our eye on that for uh, for sure, but it doesn't seem like that problem is going to go away anytime soon. 
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing the latest economic developments and budget uh, projections. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Our next guest says that if we want Congress to really get serious about putting the federal budget on a more sustainable path, we have to fix how we elect our representatives. And that's the conclusion of Nick Traiano, who's executive director of the Colorado-based Unite America. Nick is also a former Concord Coalition intern. Unite America is pursuing a state-by-state agenda to open up party primaries to all voters uh, who can participate. It was one of the organizations, along with the Bipartisan Policy Center and others, who brought people together earlier this month in Philadelphia because they're unsatisfied with either major political party. The event was called the Unconvention, and Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris was there where he caught up with Nick. I studied government in Washington, and in fact, I'm a proud intern, former of the Concord Coalition, and got really involved in fiscal issues, seeing that there's mountains of debt in our future and how that was going to impact future generations and in our inability to invest in the type of things that we need to and the cost of interest and all these things. And so I got really involved to pressure Congress to find some common ground and solve these problems because the, it seemed to me the worst solution was doing nothing. It's on autopilot, right? And so I saw the process up close in that you can take all the good ideas you want to Congress, but the incentives weren't there for them to compromise on it. And so the problems got worse. And in 2013, I was there when the government shut down. So I realized not only could they not fix these long-term problems, they couldn't even pass a budget to fund government for a year. And so that's when I hung up my hat on issue advocacy and decided to run for office as an independent for Congress in 2014. And after that race, which I did not win, uh, committed to structural democracy reform to fix our election process so it's more representative of the electorate and there are better incentives for our leaders to actually govern. And I started a group called The Can Kicks Back, and we were sick of watching politicians kick the can down the road. We felt like we were that can. And so our response was to launch a national tour from college campus to college campus with our a ma- a mascot named American, and we collected tin cans of messages from young people to send to Washington. And we had Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson involved in many of these events. They were the co-chairs of this bipartisan commission. And the reason for our partnership was that they had a blueprint of how to address the nation's long-term fiscal challenges. It's a math equation. You have to raise a bit more revenue. You have to cut some spending. And not that we need to get to a balanced budget overnight, but we have to make sure that we're on a more sustainable path. So they gave us the policy blueprint, and we were focused on trying to build political will for it. So talking about political will, it doesn't seem like that long ago. When we were in the mid-90s, we had a divided government, we had a Democratic president, we had a Republican Congress who had to come together and compromise on some budget priorities. And, um, you know, we actually had budgets that were in balance with little bits of surpluses. Now, you can argue that that was really due to, you know, surpluses in the Social Security Trust Fund or or Medicare and 
now they're in great deficit. But for a few years there, we actually saw some reductions in the national debt. And then came, you know, the 2000 election, George W. Bush becomes president, 9-11 happens, an enormous tax cut comes in. Uh, we have years of war, also spending on Medicare prescription drug benefit. And it almost seems like there was a, just a little window and we just haven't looked back. And we've got all of these deficit building things like spending a lot of money, but doing enormous tax cuts at the same time. And it's been constant in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. So when you look at that over the last 20 years or so, at where we are now, have the national debt just having crossed the $31 trillion threshold versus where we were and what we can do to get back to fiscal discipline. How, how do you assess that challenge and what, what do we do? My sense is that the country is going broke because our political system is broken. And if we want to address the debt or you name your other issue, immigration, uh, health care, climate, we have to have a functional and representative government. And the big reason why we don't today is what we refer to as the primary problem. And this election cycle, we've seen 85% of congressional seats are now safe for one party or the other. The only competition, if there is any, is in the primary of the majority party in those districts. And there are very few voters who participate. Uh, only about 19% of voters turned out this year. And so you have a very small number of voters usually on the wings of both parties that are determining the vast majority of our elections. That means the only incentive our leaders have is to pander to those wings. That's why they won't compromise with each other. And that's the structural challenge that we face. The good news is that there are solutions to this. There are states like Alaska that are now moving away from party primaries to a nonpartisan primary, where all the candidates can run on a single ballot, all the voters can participate, and candidates have to build support from a broad coalition in order to advance to the general election, where they need a majority support to win. This system, I think, will radically change the incentive structure and hopefully produce leaders that are more willing to put country over party. If you look at why we still have a broken immigration system, well, go back to uh, you know the, the 2013, 2014, there was a bill that got 68 votes in the Senate, went over to the House side and died because Eric Cantor got primaried and lost his primary. And then the Republicans didn't want to have anything to do with the issue anymore. If they didn't only face their primary voters in the path to get reelected, I think we would have solved that issue. We will have addressed our debt and we could do a lot more as a country. So it's, it's not, the problem isn't just who we're electing, it's how we're electing and the systems of our elections that we must change. There was a long time up until this year, for the last 15 years or so, where interest rates were really low. So it didn't cost a lot necessarily to borrow a lot of money. And so that does, those deficits funded tax cuts, those deficits funded lots of spending on stuff. Now it seems to be catching up with us. Interest rates are going up. The cost of carrying that debt seems to be going up. Uh, talked to somebody recently who said, this is a generation, this young generation, is a generation that knows the burden of debt because a lot of people are in a lot of debt in order to pay for college, um, like no other generation. What do you find when you are out talking to young people um, and, and the issue of fiscal sustainability comes up? Do people who are in the younger generation 
have some sense of understanding on that or is it just foreign to them? When it's a numbers issue, it's less salient than when it's a values issue. And what I mean by that is this is about intergenerational fairness. This is about making sure that we have the same opportunity as those who came before us. And in our current path, we won't. And it's not only because of the higher costs of borrowing. It is in the opportunity cost of what we're not able to invest right now in our future when we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars as a country servicing debt from decisions that those before us made. And it's locking us in to more and more uh, inflexibility in the budget as to where we might want to prioritize government spending and other such investments in our future, as I mentioned. So I think it's a moral issue. I think the same reason why young people seem to care a lot about climate is also the same reason they ought to care a lot about our budget picture. They're interrelated and they're not partisan. <laughs> These are, you know, this is a m much of a question of arithmetic as climate is a question of science. If we believe in the facts, it will lead us down a path of realizing that we're not on a sustainable path and the longer we wait to deal with these challenges, the more painful it's going to be. What do you make of the debate over uh, the action that President Biden took to cancel a lot of the student debt. Pretty controversial, but there are a lot of people arguing about how getting a higher education is so essential to getting ahead and it's so expensive. So there's a lot of people who love this and a lot, a lot of people who, who don't think it's fair. I mean, what, what do you make of that argument? Not asking you to, to, to say whether or not you support the action, but sure. what do you see on both sides of that argument? Just as an example of something where, you know, this is something that affects millions of people and it's a pretty bold action the president took, what appears to be an appropriation without any congressional uh, say on it. But what do you make of the debate on that? Well, my sense is to your last point, if we had a functional Congress, we wouldn't need a president to, whether it's appropriate or not, venture into sort of single-handed decisions like this. And I think whether you agree or disagree with the decision, it does beg the question of incentives as well, because the incentive now for borrowers is, okay, maybe I can borrow without consequence, or maybe the incentive for colleges are, I don't really need to control my prices because I'm still going to have demand, right, for these um, loans. So I think it's a Band-Aid. And I think that that's when we only govern by crisis rather than by leadership, as Secretary Panetta was saying recently, I, I heard him, then we're forced into Band-Aid solutions and not systemic solutions on issues. And I think this is a good example of that. On a point you just mentioned, having the opportunity to have more than two parties run. You ran as an independent. You saw the challenges that that, that, that made. There are a lot of people who are looking at the way we elect presidents and looking at this electoral college system and saying, it doesn't make sense. We've had two times in the last 20 years where the person who did not win the popular vote became president. You see this in Senate representation where you have a lot of states with not a lot of people who have a lot of votes in the Senate. And that translates to a lot of electoral votes for places without a lot of people. And people look at that and say, you know, it doesn't really represent us. We don't really need this. Do you, do you hear that when you, when you, when you talk about this? And, and what's your response to that? I do think a lot of people are concerned that true majorities can't express themselves in our country at the presidential or Senate level. Now, 
I have a nuanced set of beliefs about this in the sense of our constitutional design was two senators from every state because states have particular interests. Uh, or, or the fact that there's an intermediary institution uh, at the presidential level to prevent demagogues from coming to power. Now, it failed that test, in my opinion, in uh, the 2016 elections. However, a lot of this is in the realm of what I would consider pretty hard to change. These require constitutional amendments, and it's pretty clear that a change in one direction or another would expressly benefit one party or another, and so therefore I think it would be very difficult to do. So I think we ought to focus on not only what is doable, but also what is going to be impactful if we change the rules. And that's why I think primary reform at the state level fits that nexus well, because every state gets to determine its own rules, either by legislature or by ballot initiative. That's all the time we have for this week. That was Unite America Executive Director and former Concord Coalition intern Nick Triano speaking with Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Join us next week for another episode of Facing the Future. Thank you.